So, here we are. Uh, and tonight, as it says, Paul's letters to the churches, so Romans, the Corinthian letters, the Thessalonian letters, and Galatians. Now, want to start, of course, all the time. Uh, do you have any questions about anything we've already covered in the class? So any of those sections we've already covered um, and the books that they're covering? Um, or do you have any questions about any of these particular letters? Um, I suppose we could say Paul's letters in general, but if it's about a particular letter that's not one of these, then we're going to be covering that in the next two weeks. So I'm going to put those off until we're actually dealing with those. Any questions that you want to make sure that we address? getting the impression the answer is no. Okay, fair enough. Come up with any, then uh, by all means let me know. Let me give you a handout and we will just dive straight in. say Paul's letters to the churches, and I've listed those six churches, right? Well, actually, there's only four churches. There's six letters. So Romans, who did that go to? Rome. Rome, yes. <coughs> I'm trying to throw the easy ones to you right now. Corinthians. Corinth. 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 Okay. Thessalonians. This is a little bit harder. Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonica is the name of Alexander the Great's sister. So you will see it, uh, or a shortened form Thessaly, um, used uh, throughout the Greek world in different places, um, both ancient and today. But that's how that came about and why it's pronounced a little bit different. So the people who lived in the city named after Thessalonica um, are the Thessalonians. And then there's one other, and it's not a city and that's Galatians. And there is a region in uh, Roman, uh, overall the Roman province of Asia Minor, um, if you have kept those maps that we passed out, yeah, it was last week, um, you'll see Galatia in the eastern part of what we would call Turkey. So it wasn't one city, it was uh, a general region and uh, the letter was intended, as all of them were really, but this one explicitly intended to be passed around the region. So it would have gone to one church, they would have copied it, and then sent it on its way to another community. They would have copied it, they would have sent it on its way, and so on, so that it, it made the rounds to the area that Paul's trying to communicate with. It's just the way they did it. Now, are those all the churches that Paul wrote letters to? You say no. Why? Because Ephesians was not. Okay, and Ephesians was written to, please don't say Ephesus. the Ephesians. Ephesus. To the church in Ephesus. Okay, you just got to know the ancient cities. 
And there's actually another one. Colossians. And that is to what city? Colossae. And then there's a third one. Philippians. And now we're back to Alexander's family. It's named after Philippi. Well, the city is Philippi. Um, and the uh, Philippi is named after Philip, who was Alexander the Great's father, Philip of Macedon. He's the one that actually started the work of uniting all of the Greek city-states. And then he died when Alexander was fairly young, but Alexander immediately stepped in and took over and continued that work. So why do we have those others that are churches, um, and, and this says Paul's letters to the churches, but they're not in this group. Anybody, can anybody see a pattern or want to guess? Uh, I, I want to guess. They're not churches, but they're, they're just in the, that city. Okay, good guess, but no. Not right. No. He wrote to those while he was either in prison or so they are part of what we're going to be calling the prison letters. And uh, you'll see that again on your calendar uh, for the, the different classes for this series. And the reason they're classified there is because they uh, were written during the time Paul was actually imprisoned in Rome. And so they're referred to as the prison letters. Clearly they were letters to churches that Paul wrote. So they could be fitted here. And you will sometimes see that happen. And it is entirely dependent on how much time the teacher is taking to present the New Testament survey. So if they're trying to do it in fewer sessions, then they're going to pull. Um, I, I've seen it done. Um, well, I rarely see this taught in churches, frankly. But I've seen it done in colleges where they're trying to present this as like a, a one or two unit class instead of a, a large major class. And when they do that, then uh, they're going to generally lump all of Paul's letters together. Because there's a third category of Paul's letters, and that is the pastoral letters. And the reason they're called pastoral is because they were written to people who were fulfilling a pastoral function on Paul's behalf. So First and Second Timothy and Titus, those three. All right? So all of them are Paul's letters. All right, now, the author, we just pretty much dealt with that, right? So Paul, also known as Saul of Tarsus, uh, the dates. Um, again, every time we do a date, it is uncertain. None of these letters are dated. They simply didn't do that. Um, uh, sometimes literature would have been dated, or some letters would have been dated, but usually only if they were... Uh, expecting the need to be formally identified as when. It would usually be something along the line of in the first year of the reign of so-and-so. So that would orient everybody who is reading it, but even that for us, okay, we know it was somewhere between here and here that this guy reigned, but we're not exactly sure because, again, we have the calendar changes and so forth. That said, um, Generally, we're going to be seeing these dated somewhere in the late 40s to the mid 50s. So I, I put down here 48 to 56 AD. Could one of them been 45 or 46? Absolutely. Could one of them been 60? 
Absolutely. Could one of them have been 70? Probably not. Probably not. Because Paul's dead by now. Yeah, so it's really hard for him to write then. Well, I wasn't certain about the date, that's why. Well, you can be certain about the date. Because by 70, Titus was on the throne. Uh, Paul died during Nero's persecution. So probably 66. So, you know, we've got a frame. We know it's somewhere in there. Now, the specific ones I'm about to give you, there are reasons, but they're still just, we think, probably about here because of. We do not know. So don't get into arguments with people. Don't, don't get too attached to one of these dates, give or, I mean, unless it's give or take five or ten years. So, for example, um, Romans generally is considered to be written in the mid-50s, probably 56-ish. Um, we know it was written before 60 because Paul was gearing up to go to Rome somewhere between 60 and 61. This is when he appealed to Caesar and was sent to Rome. So it was written before that happened. And it was written during the time that Paul had never been to Rome because he says, I'd like to meet you guys. Um, it, it was written um, at a time when there were still a lot of Roman Christians around. And we know from history there were different years where the Christians were run out of Rome. Either that or run underground. So a letter that was going to be commonly circulated generally would not have been written during those years. So with all of those clues, generally they go around 56 AD. Uh, 1 Corinthians estimated roughly the same time, probably 55. 2 Corinthians usually dated about a year later. Um, we, we call them 1 and 2 because these are the two letters to the Corinthians that we know of. Or, no, that we have. Sorry. We know of others because in these letters he refers to others. And yet we don't have those. And it's kind of a reminder. Not everything Paul said was inspired by God. Sometimes we, we <coughs> get this thought or this feeling that if God uses somebody, then from that point forward, he's special. He's always going to be used in that way. No question God used Paul to write letters, documents in the New Testament. He wrote half the New Testament. But Paul himself was very aware of the fact that not everything he said was under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He even comments on that in some of the letters. So there's only certain of them that the Spirit kept for us. And we look at that, how, how can I say that? All I can say it in hindsight. If the Holy Spirit wanted us to have it, how many of you believe we would still not have it? Of course not. The Holy Spirit is totally capable of getting that to us. So, the Holy Spirit got these to us. There's others we don't know about, but we see them referenced. Um, Galatians, that's generally considered to be the first of these, and one of the first period, um, usually dated 48, 49, somewhere in there. Um, one of the reasons for that is that this had to be before the Jerusalem Council. Um, if you want to, if you're taking notes, you want to write this down. The Jerusalem Council is recorded in the 15th chapter of the Book of Acts. Now, I, re I referred to this. I think I referred to it last week when, when we were talking about passages in the Book of Acts. But the Jerusalem Council is where 
all of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, which at that time still contained a number of the apostles. Uh, one of the elders was James the Just, who's Jesus' little brother. Um, these are people with a stature all over the world. So when they made a pronouncement, it was with apostolic authority. And therefore, everybody listened to it. That is no longer true of any congregation, of any church. But it was true then. So there was a problem with the question of whether somebody had to become uh, a Jew before they became a Christian. Galatia is in a Gentile area. And there were numerous churches because when you, when you travel, um, here's the Mediterranean, here's Israel, Syria, you travel up, you turn uh, west to head across what we would call Turkey, the first area you run into is Galatia. So it was one of the earliest areas evangelized. There were already a number of, of Gentile churches in this area. And uh, there were people coming to them saying, well, you can respond to the gospel. The gospel's for you. But you've got to understand it is Jewish. Jesus is our Messiah. So you need to be circumcised. You need to commit to following the law. You need to become a Jew. And then you can accept Jesus as your Messiah. But if you don't do that, then it's not for you. It doesn't apply to you. Uh, Paul went absolutely crazy about that. If you read this letter, you'll see that. We'll get to that a little bit more. But it wasn't just Paul. Remember, we talked last week about Peter and uh, in the 10th chapter of the book of Acts running into Cornelius. And Cornelius having that very same experience that the apostles and people in the mob had on the day of Pentecost. And Peter's saying, how could I refuse them baptism when the Holy Spirit treated them exactly the same way as he treated us? And the, all the other apostles, when Peter said that, you're right, absolutely. So the apostles had already said, of course Gentiles can become Christians without becoming Jews, because none of them became Jews. But this was kind of being walked back. Ironically, we see in the, the Galatian letter, including by Peter. Peter succumbed to the peer pressure and withdrew from the Gentile Christians because they had not become Jews. And Paul blasts him for it in the Galatian letter. So we know it was early on. We know it was before the Jerusalem Council, generally assigned to date 4849 with the Jerusalem Council usually being seen somewhere around 50, give or take. And where in Acts was that? Acts 15. Okay, 1 Thessalonians, generally 51-ish, um, and 2 Thessalonians frequently considered to be a little bit later, but close enough that it could be the same year. So if you want to say 52 instead, whatever, it's, it's close enough, we don't know. Does that work? All right. The purpose. Each of these letters was written to a specific place. Different things happening in different places, right? So, for example, the Romans, here's a place Paul had never been. He did not know most of the people there. He knew some of them because he had met them in his travels in other places. So he writes the letter to the Romans for other reasons than... To, uh, to enlighten or continue to teach people 
in churches he himself founded, which was true of all the rest of these. Why would he do that? Well, for one thing, it is a general introduction to the gospel, according to Paul. Now, is Paul's gospel different than anyone else's? Of course not. But when I say according to Paul, Paul was a very well-educated man. He was a theologian. And so in Romans, he kind of parses that out, and we get one of the most, uh, I don't even like the word, but theological presentations of the gospel, one of the most systematic presentations of the concept of justification by faith, of, of being saved through faith as opposed to obeying the law. And he does that as a scholar, laying it out very systematically, very rationally. It's the only place we have that he, that he did that. If he did it in any other place, if he did it in other letters, they're gone. But this one has been preserved. In this letter, he also mentions that it would be nice if maybe they even helped him on his way as he went further to bring the gospel to places like Spain where it had never been heard yet. So many people see this as, for want of a better term, a mission support letter. Now, anybody who writes a letter that complicated for mission support today generally doesn't get funded. Nobody reads it. But this was the Apostle Paul. So, you know, you got a letter written to a church that had never known him. He'd never been there, and yet he took the time to write that letter to them. You can bet they paid a lot of attention to it. Okay. Um, Yeah, I'll do that part when I get to the summary. Uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Corinth. Um, Corinth was a, a very specific city. We're going to cover a little bit in background. Um, in fact, let me just go ahead and do that. I'm going to stay with, with uh, Romans. Let's cover purpose and background together. It's, it's really artificial to try to separate those. The only other thing you're going to get on this uh, handout with Romans and background uh, as opposed to the purpose, is it is one of two letters that was written to congregations he never visited. Um, and of course, Rome was the military center of the world at the time. Um, it is thought by many that Paul actually was in Corinth when he wrote the letter to Rome. But we don't know. Now, Corinth. Corinth is one city. We got first and second. That wasn't two cities. It was one city, two letters. Corinth was a city... Um, sitting right between, or right on the isthmus between Achaia and Greece. Now, if you look at a map, or the one that I, I gave you last week, or a map of uh, the Mediterranean today, um, it, the, the shorelines haven't shifted that much. There's two very distinct sections that are joined by a land bridge. One of them is called Northern Greece today, and the other is called Southern Greece today. But it used to be called Achaia. That was the northern section. And Greece, the southern section. So Achaia wasn't considered to be properly Greece, just the southern section. All of it was Greek in terms of culture and background and had been for well over a thousand years. Corinth had been, uh, often has been called uh, the Greek uh, or Mediterranean San Francisco. Now, that's a little bit out of a date out of date. When you hear San Francisco, what do you hear? 
Liberal. Liberal. Okay, that part's not out of date. Uh, and there's a reason San Francisco is like that. I mean, it didn't, it didn't just happen to be, you know, all the people with that political bent decided we're going to go down by the bay. It was the bay that brought people from very different places. And so th there's a tendency to go to the lowest common denominator. Now, you go to a place where pretty much everybody that lives there, their families have lived there for 200 years. I guarantee you it's going to be a very conservative place. But if you go to a place where there's new people coming in all the time, new ideas, new cultures represented, <coughs> excuse me, they're blending those cultures. <coughs> Whoa, sorry about that on the recording. Um, that's a place that is going to be more on the liberal spectrum. Now, I'm not saying that positively or negatively. I'm just simply saying there is a spectrum and they're going to be on that side of things. What goes with that culturally, generally? and certainly in San Francisco's case. A bunch of different religions, probably. Okay, so... Nowadays it would be beliefs and theologies yes. and politics. Well, and, and a bunch of different religions. Now that's not different than Orange County because we actually are very similar to that and, and Orange County is shifting its reputation. Um, but... San Francisco had people from all parts of the world bringing all of their own faiths. Those faiths not only collided, but they syncretized. So their people would basically say, I'm going to take this or this, I like this or this. Um, and instead of simply saying, I'm this or this or this, they, would, they became uh, eclectic, which means to call out from all sorts of different places. Does that make sense? Now, that also means there is no common bond between all of them because they're all kind of doing their own thing. Corinth was very much like that as well. What else? Morality. Morality. It's amazing it took the third comment for that. <laughs> San Francisco prides, I use that word very intentionally, prides itself on what the typical Christian would consider immorality. Now they would consider it freedom from narrow-minded people. Uh, me, for example. Um, and, and our beliefs. So San Francisco is considered to be the homosexual capital of the country. You guys are aware of this, right? Um, I mean, they actually advertise themselves that way, although they will use the word gay instead of homosexual. Um, Portland, very similar. Portland has uh, the distinction, apparently, for the last 20 years or so, of the highest number of lesbians. I'm not real sure who counts all these people, but uh, Portland believes they do, and they own that and will advertise themselves that way. San Francisco is the capital, but we're second. Okay. Now, with that then comes a reputation for immorality. And San Francisco had that reputation 100 years ago, not just today with our political climate and the issues we deal with. They've had that reputation all the way back to the pirates of the Barbary Coast. So um, it, it's part of, when you say San Francisco, it's just part of the, the heritage and part of the, what people think of. Corinth was the same way. If you called someone a Corinthian, be prepared for a fight. That was an insult. Okay. Today, Corinthian, it sounds like, oh, it must be fancy leather or something. By the way, there was no such thing as Corinthian leather. That was made up by a car company. But 
Corinthian meant a person of low moral fiber, low moral standards. You have no moral base. Okay. And it was not entirely inaccurate because if I accept all of these different faiths, all of their teachings, then anything I come up with, one of them is going to approve of, right? So I can justify myself no matter what. So when Paul writes his letters to Corinth, he's writing to a church really, really hurting. They were uh, suffering from great disunity. One of the first things he says is, you know, I've heard it said and I believe it, that you have started splitting up. Some of you say, I follow Paul. And others say, I follow Peter. And others say, I follow Apollos. And others say, well, we're Christian, as opposed to you following Paul, who apparently weren't. And, and Paul just slams them for it. There aren't four different churches. I think it's ironic that he only had four divisions there. But, I mean, given where we are. But no, there's one. And the rest of 1 Corinthians particularly, 2 Corinthians, pretty similar, is spent making sure people understand how unity comes about. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he's going to be addressing unity in the context of beliefs, of moral behavior, of uh, forms of worship, of social concerns, all sorts of different things. But it keeps coming back to unity. But he's also going to address those other things. So the divergence of beliefs, he's going to narrow them down. 1 Corinthians 15 zeroes in on the resurrection. And Paul basically says you cannot be Christian and not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus and ours to come. Ready, 1 Corinthians 15. It's, it's, it's called the resurrection chapter. He deals with things like spiritual gifts, which have become a very divisive issue. Chapters 12 through 14, focusing on that, he deals with uh, communion. Because they had figured out a way to make communion divisive. And so he deals with that. He deals with morality. There's a guy among you, and you seem to think not only is it okay, but you celebrate him, who is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, we don't know, by the way, whether that meant his mother or his stepmother. But in, in all of these cultures, that would have, either one would have been considered incestuous. And Paul's basically saying, not even the Gentiles are doing that. <laughs> you have out immoraled Corinth. And you're proud of it. In essence, what's wrong with you people? And then he gives them a way to deal with immorality in the body and tells them they don't have a choice. They must deal with it. So the whole letter, and then 2 Corinthians, tends to be a similar letter with basically just part two. It's a follow-up. Is all about gaining unity, but gaining unity on the right basis. And it really couldn't have been written to anybody else. Now the interesting thing is, for us, pretty much everything he's talking about hits home today. Particularly for people living not only in San Francisco, but Orange County. Because all those things about, you know, all the different people, different belief systems, the, the shift to the left, freedom from any constraints, we can do whatever we want to do, did I or did I not just describe Southern California? 
Orange County 30 years ago, 40 years ago, was known as a arch-conservative area. Some of you may remember that if you were here. We, I mean, for Pete's sake, what's the name of the airport? John Wayne. <laughs> How do you get more conservative than John Wayne, right? But today, and I will say, I mean, when I came 16 years ago, Orange County was definitely not conservative. It, it has been shifting even more to the left, but it is dominated now by the left. And we see that all the time. We see the effect of it in evangelism, in, in our, our interactions with the community as a church, because we're seen differently. So Corinthians, the letters to Corinthians, are immediately applicable to us in pretty much every one of the ways. All right, Galatians. Again, we talk about Galatia being written to an area as opposed to a specific congregation. So under background, you're not seeing a lot of it there, except we do know, of course, that it was written early on and when the Judaizers were still functioning. The Judaizers being the people who tried to say, you must first become a Jew. And they literally went from town to town just doing attacks of the churches that Paul had started. You would go ahead and sign in and pass it along. Uh, and by the way, there were no other churches. <clears throat> Excuse me, nobody else was starting churches. There was no division among the churches. There was just Paul had started churches. So everywhere they heard that Paul had been, they would follow. Um, and Galatians is written to the people who are hearing, they've heard Paul's gospel, they've responded to the gospel, and now they're hearing from these people. And they're even seeing Peter. And they all know about Peter. They've heard who Peter is. But they're seeing Peter, a man of this stature, kind of pulling away from them and joining with these people. And they all came from Jerusalem. And to a Christian, I mean, Jerusalem's the place, you know. So there was a temptation for them to shift over and say, okay, then we will become Jews. We will follow the law. Now, the problem with that is they weren't simply saying, we want to be part of a community, we love the customs. They were saying, we understand and we accept that you cannot be saved unless you are a Jewish and unless you follow the law, which is exactly the, the, the opposite of what the gospel says. So Paul, you ever heard the phrase, there's, there's no one worse than a convert? You know? Somebody who's uh, quit drinking coffee, you know, and then you get lectured all the time about the evils of coffee. Somebody who used to smoke and has quit smoking, and you get to hear about that like 10 times a day, right? Paul used to be a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were the ones, the, the top ones, who said everything about relating to God is in the law. It's all about the law. And Paul, when he heard the gospel, understood that's not true. So he was literally converted away from that. Now he's seeing these people he's led to the Lord being tempted back to relying on their own work for salvation. And if you read this, uh, this letter, you're going to see some very intense things said. Some of them are, are covered up 
by our uh, translations. There's one, for example, where, where'd it go? Here it is. Now that's English letters for a Greek word, peritome. Now most of you guys can figure out, if you just let yourself think about it long enough, what this means. Um, para, does anybody know what para means? Around. Okay. Periscope, you look around. Right? Uh, peritoneum, around. Tome, medical people. Tome, tome. Tonsillectomy. Operation. Well, it's a kind of odd. Tonsils is tonsils, right? right. Ek, mm -hmm. out. Tome, gut. Cut. Oh, okay. Cut the tonsils out. Tonsillectomy. That's what the word means, see? So, tome or tome uh, finds itself in our word for various kinds of surgeries. Cut around. Think Jewish. What does that mean? What does it refer to? Circumcision, Circumcision which, by the way, is Latin based for cut around. I mean, it's the exact same words, but Greek and Latin. So, peritome comes into English as circumcision in Galatians. And Paul refers to the circumcised, or the party of the circumcised, or circumcision. And when he refers to that, he's referring to the Jews who say, you have to be circumcised or you can't be Christian. So you've got to be circumcised, you've got to commit to the law, you've got to become part of Israel. Now you can be baptized into Christ. But not before. Try to do that before, won't work, won't help you. You're still in your sins. Paul says, they are the peritomi. I wish that they were the katatomi. Can you tell from my tome what that means? Kata. Across or against. Translated in some translations of English, delicately. I wish that they were cut off. What is he saying? Yes, it's exactly what some of you are thinking. They are the circumcision. They, they were so proud of that little operation. I wish the whole thing was cut off for them. That's the intensity Paul has. Because he sees these as people who are trying to pull people away from salvation in Christ and back to the slavery of the law. And he gets downright mean about it. And it's interesting, there's no apology for that ever. Um, Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh. There are those who believe his temper was that. You get to pay your money and take your choice. All right. So the Galatians letter was written basically to say, no, you're saved by faith. You're not going to be saved by the law. Do not give in to the law. Because the law is about the flesh. Faith is about the spirit. Yeah, just put it there. Thank you. All right, then we got First and Second Thessalonians. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, 
again written to uh, the people in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was in uh, Macedon or uh, Achaia, the, the northern part. I've been saying Achaia is the northern part. Achaia is the southern part. Macedon's the northern part. Sorry, my first century geography went on tilt for a little bit. Um, the northern peninsula of the two, um, and he wrote this in answer to questions basically about how to live the Christian life, but this was a young church. Okay, This was a young church. Now, one of the things that we talk about with the book of Acts in their young church is um, we're trying to figure out how to live because we thought Jesus was coming right back. And it's been like six months and our savings are all used up. And, you know, I'm from Rome and I didn't go back. And now what? And so they had to find ways to support these people because they made an assumption that Jesus was going to return very quickly. And he didn't. Have you noticed? Okay. Uh, Peter deals with that, by the way, in Second Peter series that we're going to start a week from Sunday. Um, but these people are dealing with the same thing. They've been told, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now that's actually written in John 40 years later. But the teaching's there. Okay, that's, that's the basic gospel. They've been told they will have this salvation. But something weird's happening because now we're dealing with being into the 50s, so we're now talking 16, 17 years minimum after the resurrection of Jesus. And what weird is happening is people are dying. People who are Christians are dying. Thought that wasn't supposed to happen. Any of you ever struggle with that? I mean, here we are 2,000 years later. We have the same feeling. Lord, no. <laughs> what happened to salvation? Let's go with that instead of the whole dying thing. Right? But no. People are dying. Christians are dying. Doesn't mean they're not Christians. These people were confused about that. And a number of other things having to do with Jesus' return. Uh, or how they're to live in the meantime. So Paul writes to them and explains more about Jesus' return, but also about now. How does that affect you? So, for example, with regard to people dying, Paul introduces a phrase. It's probably being used before, but we see it in Scripture now. Um, chronologically, um, I, I believe, I won't swear to it, but I believe it's the first time chronologically this phrase, this euphemism is used. When he speaks of the dead, he talks about those who have fallen asleep. Okay? Now, what's the difference between being asleep and dead? Asleep's temporary. Yeah. You wake up. What Paul's trying to say to them is, you're looking at these people wrong. You're, you're, you're losing heart. You're grieving, as the people in the world do. But you need to remember, those people aren't going to stay dead. The teaching of the resurrection has always been there. Jesus has always talked about that. You will rise as I do. Can I stop you there for a moment? Go ahead. Okay. So I understand the Jewish people, that when they die, they die. Mm, they're waiting for no. Them. I don't think you can say anything the Jewish people believe. 
because I can line up about 10 different groups that will disagree on it. Does that make sense? So you've got, you, you, there's absolutely synagogues that will teach that. There are yeah. synagogues that will teach other things, uh, all the way back to heaven and how you get there. Uh, today, mostly good works, uh, not just the Mosaic Law, but some, still that. Um, and others who were simply confused because, you know, we thought the kingdom was going to be forever. The concept of life after death was a major theological division even among Jews in Jesus' time. Paul actually uses it, in, if you've read the book of Acts, he, he uses it as an argument to manipulate the Sanhedrin because he calls on the Pharisees to side with him because he says, I'm being persecuted because of my belief in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees all believed in that. The Sadducees believed what you just said. Dead is dead. This is all there is. And the average person walked around saying, I don't know, but I hope not. Which is not all that different than the average person today. See? So there's never really been a unity among various people, uh, Jewish people, and certainly not in this time. But the influence on the Pharisee of the Pharisees was far stronger away from Jerusalem than the influence of the Sadducees. The Sadducees was what was called the priestly party. They were aligned with the Levites and the priests headed by the high priests. Their power center was the temple. The priests were 100% about the temple. Apart from the temple, the priests had no reason to live, literally, no reason to exist. Whereas the Pharisees were all about the law. And so in the, in the dispersion of Jews throughout the world, they would establish gathering together places. Guess what Greek is for gather together? Or go together? Synagogue. Synagogue. That's what the Greek word means. It's, it's just, that's where we gather together. So they would establish these places, but they couldn't sacrifice because it was against the law to sacrifice anywhere but in the temple in Jerusalem. So what they did is they focused on the law, teaching the law. And their teachings became way, way more the norm than the teachings of the Sadducees outside of Jerusalem. So the teachings for the Jews who were Christians in Thessalonica would have been influenced by not the Sadducees, but the Pharisees. The Sadducees did not have a presence in the Greek world. But also you've got the Gentiles because this church was made up of Jews who had become Christians and Gentiles who had become Christians. All of them had some form of belief in something after. For the Greeks, they referred to it as Hades. We tend to think of Hades as hell. It's even translated as hell some places in the New Testament. But the Greek Hades was basically the place of the dead. Good, bad, indifferent, whatever. It's just, that's where dead people go. The Hebrews, even in David's time, had the concept of Sheol. Because some of David's psalms refer to Sheol. And Sheol was basically exactly the same concept. We don't know much about it. Don't know if it's good or bad. Well, you're dead, so it can't be that good. But that's where dead people go. 
Paul comes in and starts, to, well, Jesus comes in and starts talking paradise. Eternal life, the word eternal is not just longevity. It's not about quantity. It's also about quality. So when, when the gospel goes out to Greek, to Roman, to Jew, all of them, they were seeing a hope that they hadn't seen before. They were seeing something very positive that they hadn't seen before. What was bugging them here wasn't that. It was, we thought we weren't going to have to die first. We thought it was going to happen very quick. And here we are 17 years later, and it hadn't happened yet. Okay? And, of course, we can identify with this. You think 17 years? We got 2,000. And it hasn't happened yet. I don't know about you, but I prayed for it several times a day. Lord, come on, let's, let's just do this, you know? But here we are. And again, a little teaser for the Peter series. Peter actually tells us why that is, which is kind of cool. What Paul says is, don't grieve the way the others do who have no hope. You have hope. You know the resurrection is coming. And then he goes on to tell them, What's going to happen is the dead in Christ are going to rise before you do. When, when the Lord returns, it's going to be like a trumpet. Everybody's going to know this whole thing of, of the, the secret uh, rapture thing. Find that in the Bible. I'll eat it. It is named there. As lightning from the east to the west. Anybody been in a good Midwestern lightning storm? Those are cool. You can read a book by it. I mean, lightning strike. Read fast, but you got about five seconds. The light kind of stays around that long then it goes away and you're pitch black again but nobody nobody misses that lightning strike you cannot miss that it's everywhere Jesus is going to come back that way in the sky these giant trumpets and the dead in Christ will rise first and meet him in the sky and then now here's Paul's understanding and, you, and listen to what he says those of us who remain will join them. When did Paul think Jesus was coming back? Before he died. Those of us who remain. He puts himself in that. You can see uh, a shift in Paul as he gets a little older. In Philippians, he starts talking about, oh, I can't, can't decide if I want to die or, or stay alive. You know? I mean, it, yeah, it's, that's the way, really? I don't know about you guys, but I've, I've been there. I've been right on the edge before. And I know exactly what he meant. I don't know. I mean, here's Donna. There's the kids and the grandkids. There's the church. I love serving, but that's Jesus. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. He was better. <laughs> So, okay, Lord, let's do this. What do you mean I'm still here? <laughs> What's that about, you know? Paul grew to understand that. And by 2 Timothy, he grew to understand he was going to die. Well, probably, and he was right. We grieve. We grieve. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And the reason is we know that someday, we do not know the day, in fact, we've been told, you will not know the day. But when it happens, 
not only will we join the Lord if we're still here, not dead yet, but all those who have died will be resurrected. And the picture that he paints, I, I'm sorry, I, don't, I, I can't understand anybody not getting excited about that. I had a dream once. Amazing dream. The Lord had come back. Apparently, I don't know if I had died or if they were all up there already and now all the rest of us were, but all of a sudden we started rising up. By rising up, I mean floating in the air. Now, I've always wanted to fly. Not, you know, fly, but fly. <laughs> Ever seen an amazing cloud formation? You want to just pop up there and see what it's like on the other side? Lord, can we do that? And I had that dream that he was calling us. And, and just the force of him saying, come here, all of us started doing that. It burned into my head. I can see Paul as he's writing talking about that. That's what First and Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians were about. Lots of different applications of it, doctrinal, lifestyle, but yes, he's coming. But he isn't here yet. So in the meantime, this. Does that make sense? Okay. Summary of, con of, of uh, content, and then we're going to get to some specific passages that you might want to zero in on. Romans, justification by faith. That sounds very academic, doesn't it? Justification. What does that mean? What, is it, what does justification mean? You know, I used to tell the kids it means just as if it never happened. Okay. You make it just as if it never happened. Which in the end is what happens, but no, that's not what it means. Oh, I lied to those No, things. you just <laughs> simplified it for children. Just. Right. Righteous. How many of you are righteous? Trick question, isn't it? Think about it. Slow down. How many of you are righteous? Wow, a couple of you may be moved a little, but <laughs> am I righteous? Are you right with God? Yes. Okay, then you're righteous. See what she said? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So all the unrighteousness is gone. Until the next time. Okay, I'm pretty quick on that. But in the meantime, righteous. Justification, just and righteous in our society, we think of righteous as a quality and justice as the process for making things right. But that's what we've done in America to the word. The words actually are synonyms. So to be justified and to be righteous are the same. Justification then, from an academic perspective, is Jesus making us righteous. Okay. Now all of you going, nope, not raising my hands. I get it. You're not righteous on your own. I'm not righteous on my own. None of us is. None of us can be. But Jesus was. Jesus is, and Jesus gives us that by cleansing us of unrighteousness. So then we are. But how did that happen? How do I get cleansed of unrighteousness? 
how do I accept the salvation Jesus offers according to scripture? By believing. Believing is a synonym for what other word? Faith. Justification by faith. Okay? So Romans is a systematic presentation of that. Today we read that and it seems dusty. It seems like, yeah, whatever. Get on with it. But you've got to understand, he's writing to a group of people, both Gentile and Jew, who have never heard of this before other than the gospel. Everything they knew from all of the faiths that they had come from, you were, you were probably never justified, but you were accepted by God by your sacrifices, by pleasing that God somehow. And in the case of the Jewish God, by pleasing him by obeying the law, which of course no one can do. So we're all stuck. Paul lays out very clearly a presentation of the justification by faith. By, now, we talk about this a lot, and it's important that we not leave this so that it's not misunderstood. So faith, equals what what's the Greek word? Pistis. Someone should know this because I say it until you're sick of me saying it. Pistis. Alright? And the words mean what what words in English mean this? Trust. Trust. Belief. Faith of belief. It's the one we usually start with. Faithfulness. We talked about this last week or the week before, I think. It's important that we keep on to this. Because this is how we come to Jesus. He's the one who said that. But it's not, okay, I believe God exists, so I'm there. What does James say about that? You believe God exists? Great. So does, the, so does Satan. So do the demons. Congratulations, you are now on the level of faith of Satan. But stop and think about it. How many of you have ever doubted the belief of God? Raise your hand because everybody has. Okay. You suppose Satan has? No. Not a chance. Not a chance because he's, he's a spiritual entity, a spiritual creation. He experiences God like this, like we experience each other. He doesn't doubt at all. So it's okay to believe as he believes in that sense. But not just that. Does Satan trust God? Of course not. Do we trust God? How do we trust God? What does that mean? To trust him. To believe he has our best interests at heart. Okay. And what does that look like? To act as the way. To act like it. And how do you do that? Follow, obey, follow what okay. he says. So okay. it leads to faithfulness, which is, you know... Um, I believe in him, I believe in who he is he is love by the way, I trust him because he's love and therefore when he tells me to do something I do it, why? Because he's love and love means doing what's best for the other so I know he wants what's best for me okay. now that's perfect how many of you have done that? Perfect no, okay so that's what we're, we, we believe help us in our unbelief every one of us can say that this one however we need to get back to that trust thing because how do all these people think they get to God? We just talked about it. How do they please God? Works. By what they do. 
They earn it by their sacrifices, by doing some, some great task that's going to impress God, by fulfilling the law, by what they do. Paul says very consistently, not just in Romans, very consistently, very concisely in Ephesians, we'll get to that in next week or the week after, we are not saved by our works, by our efforts. It is a gift through faith. Which, by the way, isn't how it's usually translated. How is it usually translated? We are saved by grace. Grace, which means gift. gift. <laughs> we, we sort of have translate that. Uh, it's in academic English. That's fine. But how many of us speak academic English all the time? So if we really understand what he's saying, no, it's not something that you earn. It's a gift. But you receive the gift through faith. You've got to believe, of course, that he exists. You've got to trust, rely on him, not what you do. And that's the hardest thing for most of us. You know, this becomes a little easier because if nothing else, we can talk ourselves into thinking that's best for us. So, of course, I'll do that because I, I want to live that way. But trusting him. Trusting him is very easy, by the way, right up until you have to. And then all of a sudden it gets very, very rough. And, of course, all of us run into times when we have to. So... Did the reliance on works, which suddenly wasn't required anymore, and talked about the freedom, did that lead to some of the immorality and stuff that? Oh, absolutely. And problems in yeah. the churches because they absolutely. And by the way, matter. when you say wasn't relied anymore, required anymore, I assume you're referring to the Old Testament law. Right. Well, and you said a lot of the other belief systems yes. required yes. works, and right. now they're saying it's not that they weren't required. Jesus says, for example, you have to forgive others. Now, is that a work that we're doing to earn salvation? No. Yeah, the automatic answer is no. It has to be no every time. Because guess what? I've already sinned. So if I simply don't sin by forgiving you, all that does is mean I don't pile up the pile any bigger. I don't get rid of the pile that way. So no, it doesn't mean I'm, I'm earning a salvation. What he's saying is, that's part of this. By the way, was it an absolute statement? If you sin and don't forgive someone, did you just say, I'm going to hell, no, no stops? <laughs> Do you think that's true? Of course not. If we sin, what? He's, he is if, if we confess our sin, I'm sorry. He is faithful and just to forgive. Jesus is never, ever, ever telling us we have to be perfect or, or do everything perfect. But as soon as we say, okay, then I don't have to do that, we just stepped out of faith. We just said, I'll just do what I have to do. Faith says, no, I want to do what my king wants me to do. And I will do everything in my power to make that happen. And I don't care how it feels. I don't care how hard it is. I'm still at least going to try. That's faith. So justification is by this. Not by, oh, I believe in God. I, be, I think God exists. You know? And then we add in our culture, 
something that's become ingrained in uh, as we understand it. Right? God as I understand him. That's pretty close to idolatry, folks. God is not as I understand it. God is, period, whether I grasp him or not. He doesn't change because I don't understand him. He's still God. This is what we refer to here, it's just our terminology, as three-dimensional faith. Because faith is one thing. I'm not adding to the Bible here. I'm not telling you anything that hasn't been true since the day it was written 2,000 years ago. And in fact, it was far truer for them for the simple reason they understood the meaning of that word. It was their language. Whereas to us, we've kind of narrowed it to mostly this one. And then we have people running around who say, I believe in God, but then they do whatever they want to do and think everything's fine. Belief is not, I'll do whatever I want to do. That's called, I'm Lord. It doesn't work. So justification by faith, Paul lines that all out to a group of people who are not used to it, don't understand it. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, um, again, Varied responses to disunity, questions regarding the living of the Christian life, judgment, discipline, uh, strife versus unity, morality, marriage and divorce. Uh, some interesting teaching on marriage and divorce in there. Again, why? Because immorality tends to impact marriage and marital unions, right? And we've all figured that out in our society too. So by addressing that, he's addressing marriage as well communion, meat offered to idols. Uh, how many of you uh, struggle with that one today? <laughs> Do you even know what it is? Meat offered to idols. Okay. Um, so there's still the, this, this temple to Apollos that I used to worship in. But now I'm a Christian. I understand Apollos is a figment of the Greek imagination. I'm not going to participate in that anymore. I only worship God. But the problem is People bring bowls to this temple, and it's the biggest temple around. And they have sacrifices every day, and they slaughter the animals. And they go into the temple with the animal. And guess what's inside? A butcher shop. They butcher the animal. On the other side, there's a market. And they sell the meat. And that's where almost everybody gets their meat. You don't see independent butcher shops very often in there because it's, it's fighting against Apollos. Generally, that would be considered a bad idea for Greeks who believed in him. I don't believe in Apollos. I don't believe a sacrifice to Apollos was a sacrifice to a real god. So I don't believe eating this meat being sold out the back door is an act of worship of Apollos. <coughs> I think it's just eating some meat. And I'm kind of into that, to be honest with you. But someone else comes along and says, wait a minute, that's part of the worship. You're, wor you're, you're practicing idolatry. You say you're a Christian. And this was going on throughout the entire Roman world. Paul deals with it also in Romans. And uh, it was being dealt with, we know, historically in many different churches, many different areas. Paul's attitude, by the way, anybody remember it? Was Paul a vegetarian? 
I eat meat more than all of you, he says. I'm into meat. I am a meatosaurus. Okay, that's not really translation. But that's what he meant. So I'm going to eat meat. Why? Because you're wrong. There is no Apollos. It doesn't matter. It's just meat. I'm going to eat what I want to eat. Unless. My, my brother. Weaker in the faith. He says that, by the way. You disagree with me? You're weak. <laughs> Wonderful guy, Paul. <laughs> that, you know, everybody loves him. Sort of aura going on. You know, you think I'm that way. No, no. So, these weaker brothers, but he refers to them another way, which is why the final response that comes out of Paul, for whom Christ died. If eating meat causes my brother, for whom Christ died, to stumble in his faith, I'm a vegetarian. So he's addressing both sides of it, but it's like, okay, so here's the argument, here's the answer, you're right, you're wrong. But if you keep doing what you're doing and it hurts them in their faith, because what was happening is they're doing it, they're saying it is, it is worship of Apollos. But look at these guys, and they're older in the faith than we are, so worshiping Apollos must be okay if you're a Christian. So they start doing that and in their heart, it's an act of idolatry as a Christian. Paul says, you do that, you use your freedom to cause them to stumble in their faith. What is, what is wrong with you? Is meat that important? And that's when he says, if, if that's what's gonna happen and it causes, and I love that phrase, this person for whom Christ died. That's how Paul saw people, even who disagreed with him and who were wrong. Someone for whom Christ died. If that's what's going on, forget it. I don't need him. All right. Galatians, we've talked about that before, um, and Thessalonians. I think the rest of this is just a bit repetitious, so let's turn to the next page which is, you know, turn it over. And the first thing you'll see, just these are specific passages, is a set of passages that's called the Roman Road. Anybody here know about the Roman Road? What is the Roman Road? It's a trap. What did you say? It's, it's a trap. Oh, I thought you said it was a trap. <laughs> wow, you got an attitude to it. What was it? A trap. It is these passages. The Roman road is a uh, something I have no idea who put this together originally. This, what? No? Now the Roman road is this pulled out and the rest of the letter left behind. Um, and yes, it's in a tract. Um, it, I know it was used as, as early as the 50s and I think the 40s. Um, but I don't know before that, and like I said, I don't know who actually wrote it. Um, but what it is, is specific passages that you can use to illustrate to people basic points of the gospel. So, the gospel is good news, yes? Yes. 
But to understand the good news, to accept the good news, you first have to know the bad news. What's the bad news? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Somebody who thinks they haven't sinned, somebody who, who's very happy with themselves the way they are, they, there's nothing they need to be forgiven for. Forget bringing them to the Lord. They see no need for it, right? So, no, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Of course, Romans 3.23 is in the middle of a section where Paul says that like seven or eight times, over and over and over. So a pretty clear emphasis. A few chapters later, in 6.23, he says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, okay, I'm a sinner, so what? We're all sinners, not a big deal. What's the big deal? Well, what you earn, that's wages, what you earn with your sin is death, destruction, eternally. But the free gift of God, by the way, you'll see this translated free gift, and you'll hear it read free gift. That's never what it actually says. It just says gift. By definition, gifts are free. Right? So free gift is simply uh, an overstatement. But, of course, gifts are free. So, the bad news is, I've sinned, and I'm condemned because of my sin. Now that's pretty important. Agreed? No one who doesn't believe that will be interested in the gospel. People who believe there is no such thing as condemnation and this is, this is a trend today, theologically, in the United States, in churches. It, I call it neo-universalism. Everybody's saved. There is no punishment. Oh, go home, don't worry about it. God loves people too much to punish them. I wish that was true. I wish love included not punishing, but it's not true. This says that. Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation So, yeah, there's sin, and there's punishment for sin, but there's no condemnation if you're in Christ. By the way, what comes before 8-1? Numbers 7-something, right? So we do this thing with the chapters and verses again. This passage is weak compared to what it is when you read it with a few paragraphs ahead of it first. Because in those paragraphs in Romans 7, Paul says, everything I want to do, I don't do. The very things I want to stop doing, those are the things I keep doing. And you can just feel the emotion rising in his, as he's writing, and he finally just exclaims, I am, I am an, a wretch. I'm going to use that word today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I am, I'm the low, I am a slave. Whatever word means that for you. What will I do? There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Paul is talking in Romans 8.1 explicitly about himself. It's personal testimony. And that Romans passage is, passage is one of the best we can read because how many of us have felt slimy? How many of us have felt so down? We've, we've blown it so bad. We just, I don't deserve to live. How can I be here and, and have done that? And then we read this guy who's written half the New Testament 
whom God has given the power to raise people from the dead. He's done all sorts of amazing things. He's considered to be one of the most faithful people in the history of our faith. And he says, I am total slime. We thought exactly, and he did exactly what we did. We hear all the good things about Paul. We don't see the struggles. I guarantee you the man who said, I wish they were cut off, was struggling with that anger in his heart thing and probably didn't keep it in his heart. Paul was human. He was a sinner, just like you and me. So Romans 8.1 becomes extraordinarily powerful when we remember that. I personally think it's a good idea to read it before you share this with people and share that with them too. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay? Now there's a problem with that. What's the problem? It only addresses the first one. Well, I don't know, excuse me, I don't know that it only addresses this. But it sounds like it to American ears that have heard that over. The word is pistis. And it still means all this stuff. If, if all of this is true, based in Jesus' resurrection, you will be saved. But we read it and we think, I changed my mind. I think God does exist. I, I, yes, Jesus was raised. I'll raise my hand when the guy asked the question. And so he'll know I did. And now I'm going to heaven. That's not what it says. Believe, that word, believe, in Romans 10, 9, is this word. And it means all of this. It's a package. Romans 6, now we went backwards. I'm sorry, Paul wasn't really wanting the Roman road thing when he wrote the letter. Um, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the, of the Father, we too may live a new life. Okay? So, it's actually a great way to share the gospel. You will find, by the way, that the older, uh, the, the copy of this, the tract, because there's all sorts of tracts, um, the more likely that last one isn't there. It just stops with the belief thing, and it has to do with some theological arguments that we really don't need to go into because they're nonsense. But this is a great way to simply walk somebody through the basic points of the gospel to help them understand how to respond. It's probably not the place to start because they need to hear the backstory more. They need to hear more about Jesus, more about God. But when they're, when they're at that point of, well, I want this too. Okay, let's, let's walk through how that happened. All right. Um, another passage in Romans is what I just referred to. It's uh, the 7th chapter, 14th to 25th verses. And then in the 12th chapter, and actually moving on, it's spiritual life and what that actually looked like. Romans 12.1, Paul says, Therefore, give your bodies, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Now when he said that, remember, everybody he's writing to, every single one of them, grew up in some faith system that practiced animal sacrifice. Is there anybody here who grew up in a faith system where you practiced animal sacrifice? See, 
it, it's hard to find any, anywhere in the world it's hard to find today it still exists in a few places but it's extremely rare when Paul says this they have an image in their mind that is real clear because they grew up with it they saw it every day and that is the slaughter of the sacrifice blood everywhere Paul says no God, God doesn't want you to be a sacrifice you, know, you lay down the altar and, and you're, you're dead he wants you to live and he wants you to live for him so present your bodies as a living sacrifice okay. and then the rest of the, of the letter is basically how do you do that Paul wrote most of his letters in a, a one-two kind of presentation. The first part of it, not you, I was gonna say the first half, in this case, it's the first two-thirds. One through 11. Of, uh, what mostly is, is referred to as a theological foundation. I'm not sure I like the word because it, it makes it sound kind of cold and sterile academic. And it's anything but that, that, that seventh chapter. There's nothing cold and sterile about what he's saying but it is foundational. And then he comes to another point where he says, okay, because of that, live this way. Because all the stuff we now know, we, we understand, then live like this. Okay. Corinthians, not so much, because Corinthians pretty well started with, yeah, we gotta talk about how to live because you're blowing it left and right. But that's not just Romans, that's most of his letters. So 1 Corinthians, Church Discipline, chapter five, commanded, commanded, not an option. Uh, the Lord's Supper, 11, uh, 17 to 34. Most of the quotes that we hear from people doing little devotionals on Sunday morning about the Lord's Supper are not from the Gospels. They're from Paul describing the events of the Gospels in 1 Corinthians 11. And the reason he's doing it is, you hear him in the beginning, you guys are so divided that you don't even share the Lord's Supper together. You come together, you guys have a lot of money, you have food, you bring your food, you're going to eat first. Now remember, the Lord's Supper came out of a meal. And in the early church in Jerusalem, it was celebrated in the homes as they ate their meals. Just exactly the way Jesus told them to do it out of the Last Supper. So it's, it's understandable, it comes out of a meal, right? But the more people that came together, the more and more, well, the less we did it as a meal, and the more it became simply remembering the body and the blood of Jesus. So here's a, here's a situation where they're coming together in a meeting room. They're large enough that the myth is, uh, throughout the New Testament, they're all house churches. They're these small little groups meeting in homes. That's nonsense. Most of these churches have thousands of people. So you know, show me a home that's going to work for that. So they would meet wherever they could. They would meet in fields. They would meet in giant empty buildings. Uh, they would meet in temples, the Jewish temple. They would meet in uh, caves, particularly when you know people were chasing them down. Uh, they would meet wherever they could. And they would gather together, and apparently some were bringing their food. The others were sitting because they didn't have any, the poorer ones. And they're watching these guys eat. They didn't share. They're there to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But no, you're going to watch me eat first. And they also have wine. Now, wine's part of the Lord's Supper. Okay. But no, that's not what they were doing. They were getting drunk. And Paul calls them on it. He spells this out. And then says, now, 
from now on, you can eat at home. And this is the first place it is commanded by an apostle, don't do it as part of the meal. Now, we can still do it as part of the meal. I don't think we're disobeying scripture unless we do it like they did it. And then, of course, we are. The point of saying, no, you're going to do it just this is because you guys are so selfish and so disunited that you can't even celebrate the sacrifice of the Lord together without emphasizing, I've got stuff and you don't. So he just lowers the boom on him. But in the process of doing that, he reviews what the Lord's Supper was about systematically and gives some really clear teaching on how it should be uh, observed. Spiritual gifts discussed 12, uh, chapters 12 to 14. Uh, the chapter between 12 and 14 is what? Yeah, it's amazing how that works. 1 Corinthians 13, does that strike a, a bell for anybody? What do we call that chapter? The love chapter. There's a million songs written over the last 2,000 years because it is beautiful. Paul basically lists 15 uh, different adjectives to describe agape in that chapter. It is in the context of spiritual gifts. Love, Paul says, is the greatest of these. These what? Spiritual gifts. Or, more properly, spirit things. Or gifts. There's two words in the Greek language used and translated in the New Testament, English, as spiritual gifts. One is pneumatikos, which means spirit thing. And the other is harismata, which means, that's the plural, charisma is a gift. The two words have never joined in the New Testament. That's our image. Now, that doesn't mean I don't believe in spiritual gifts. I believe they're gifts, and I believe the Spirit gives them, therefore spiritual gifts. But we need to be careful about these theologies that we construct, because they're, in large part, our imagination. So if you want to know more about that, read that. Um, the love chapter, of course, chapter 15, Christ's resurrection. Second uh, Corinthians, comfort. The word comfort comes from the same word Jesus used as the name or title of the Holy Spirit. Paraclitis. The verb form is parakaleo. It means to be called alongside. The helper, the comforter, the counselor, uh, however you want to translate it. This was the theological foundation for my doctoral dissertation. Because Paul describes here, we receive this from the Holy Spirit. And then we pass it on to others. They pass it on to others. It, it's, it's a contagion. It was a very positive contagion. And that's what the church is supposed to be doing. The restoration of fellowship in chapter 2. Chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians refers to disfellowshipping someone. What today would be known as excommunication. It was real. It was necessary. It was loving. Only when followed by this. So in chapter 2, in the second letter, he says, in essence, okay, okay, you, you've done that, but the point was to restore him, so make sure you do. You don't leave him out there hanging. Restore him. Okay. And then the whole concept of being unequally yoked is referred to in 2 Corinthians. Galatians, Paul's intensity, 3.1, that's the passage I was telling you about. A clear statement of the Gentiles being grafted in to what he refers to metaphorically as as God's plant, God's truth. Um, freedom versus license, 513. He says, I'm free to do everything. Everything is lawful, but I will not be enslaved by it. 
So I'm, I'm, I'm this old Pharisee that was chained by the law. I am now totally free. I will not allow any of that stuff that freed me to chain me again. I won't be enslaved to my freedom. Same kind of a picture he, he was living out when he talked about not eating meat if it was a bad thing for someone. Um, and then, of course, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 19 to 25. Now, the fruit of the Spirit is actually 22, 23, but read the whole paragraph because it's not just a list. It's, there's a context to that. Thessalonians, uh, the death of, that's supposed to be believers, by the way. And uh, by now, if you're on the list, you've already gotten an email from me. Maybe you didn't open it, but I sent it um, with uh, the electronic version, and that's corrected in that. Just saying that before you start yelling at me. Um, and then again, instructions for practical living, chapter five. Very, very cool list of very, very practical things like always rejoice, you know, pray without ceasing, never stop praying. How do you get more practical than that? And by the way, that was not metaphoric, that was not a figure of speech. He meant that, he lived it. But th these are the things that he included in that list, part of them. Second Thess Thessalonians, the man of lawlessness, um, we're talking about the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ, um, and it refers to that, but also idleness. One of the issues uh, that, that struck the church was, Jesus coming any day, why should I mess with this work thing? I'll just hang around. People will share the food. They're Christians. They love sharing, you know. Um, and Paul says, look, if they won't work, don't give them any food. If they won't work, don't let them eat. He did not, by the way, say if they can't work. He's very, very clear about that in the same passage. But he was, he was making it very clear, we're going to be living here for a while until the Lord returns, and you don't stop your responsibilities in the meantime. Um, treatment of those under discipline, and then finally Paul's signature, which is just thrown in there as a nice little thing to show that uh, Paul probably didn't physically write any of these. He used a, a secretary what was known as an amenesis. Most of the time, probably a guy named Silas, Silvanus, same man. Silas is the Greek version, Silvanus is the Latinized version. Um, and in this, Paul says, see, I sign with my own hand. See with what large letters I write. Because traditionally, we understand Paul to have had bad eyesight. And this was just cited as a way of, see, he, he had to write big to even be able to see it himself. So that one was free. Just do that as extra. All right. Thank you, guys. If you got kids, this would be a good time to uh, relieve um, them and or their teachers, whichever way the night went. Okay.